Lord, we, your children, stand in this place tonight to worship you, to give you the honor, the glory that is due your name. Thank you, Father, you have inhabited the praises of your people tonight. And we know that your presence is with us, and for that we are grateful. So, Lord, as we spend a few moments opening your word, please, dear Father, may your very heart be heard by your people in spite of the messengers, these frail men who will open your word. God, may we not be heard, but may our God, our true and our living God, be heard in this place tonight. We crave this. We beg for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Be seated. First uh, Chronicles 27, 33, and then 2 Samuel 15. First Chronicles chapter 27. And verse number 33, I feel that the messages may be, at least it feels to me, a little bit strange. But I believe that God has something to speak, and I pray that he'll help me to share it. First Chronicles 27, 33 we began the, um, the meeting on Saturday evening with a small group. The, it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you, everybody, that's contributed to the music, the instrumentalist. Amen. And uh, most of the music group got here Saturday, practiced uh, with Brother Danny Thomas for several hours. And uh, we had a little service, and then it built yesterday. Brother Scott preached a a beautiful truth on Saturday evening about connections, intersections. And I think uh, all of us in this room tonight, if we, if we took time to pause and think, we will recognize that we, we can't be connected with all 8 billion people in the world, but we can be connected with who God designs us to be connected to, and that God intersects people. Um, at particular times in our lives. And some of those intersections are lifelong bonds. Some of them are meant for a, for a season. But I think everyone here tonight could look back and realize there were strategic times that God intersected your life with people. Sunday morning, we talked on the, the theme of the conference, recalibration. And we talked about how almost everything that measures anything whether it's measuring with medical equipment, whether it's uh, speedometers, whether it's compasses, whether it's the sight in a gun, everything has to get recalibrated. That everything will get off just a little bit over time. Just if you use it, it will eventually get off, and it has to be recalibrated. And if it doesn't, that over time, that little degree that's off can have a significant impact. And so we looked at um, our need to perpetually be brought back to God. It does not matter how right you are at this moment, you'll need to be made right again. It's a perpetual thing. And then the message, I don't even know if I know how to explain last night's message um, from Brother McGee. But what, what I understand from the message last night, through the message, through experience, and through the Word of God, there, there are times when God allows you 
to be taken to very dark places. Um, God will allow Satan to sift you like wheat. But I, I love how it was said last night, uh, a, a quite lengthy description about how wheat is sifted from as it's harvested to how it's crushed to how it's winnowed to how it's stamped on. Um, but when you're done with all the breaking of the wheat, then you bake bread out of it. And when, I just love that thought, Brother McGee, when, when Satan was done with everything he did to Peter, the Lord said, when you're done with all that, there's a conversion, and you're going to feed the brethren. I'm going to bake bread out of what Peter goes through. It's beautiful. So tonight, I guess the Lord knows how to tie it all in, so I'll leave it with him. First Chronicles 27.33. And Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai, the architect, was the king's companion. Was the king's companion. There is very little said about Hushai in the Bible. Very little. In fact, he's only mentioned here in the Chronicles as what role he played. And to the king, to King David, he was the king's companion. And later on in 2 Samuel, where we'll be reading shortly if you want to migrate over there, um, he will be called the king's friend. And there is a particular role that he is going to play during this season where Absalom, David's son, has betrayed him and taken the kingdom from David, and Hushai the king's friend, is going to be there for him at this critical moment. We don't really read about Hushai in David's childhood. We don't read about Hushai in David's journeys through the wilderness before he became king. We don't read about Hushai in many of the events that took place, but he was obviously there. Um, if you were ever to be in a powerful position like a king you are always going to be surrounded by people. If you're a president, if you're a king, if you're a prime minister, if you're a governor, if you're in any position of power, you will always have people around you. And um, it's very hard if you're in power to know the real motive of the people who are around you. Because men are ambitious for power. They're ambitious for a position. And so when you're a, when you're a king or when you're a ruler or when, when you're in any kind of place of power, um, there's always this nagging question at the back of your mind, is this person who is my friend, are they actually my friend? Like, is this a true friend? I would say probably everyone here tonight has experienced at one time or another a, a, a falling out with someone that you really believed with all of your soul was a friend. You believed it. And then at some point, there, there's some type of a scenario, there's some type of a trauma, there's some type of something, and uh, it's, it's really only uh, perhaps when you're no longer the king. You understand when a man leaves office, 
and has nothing else to offer people around him, those who were piggybacking that powerful man to power, when he's no longer the pathway to power, um, the friendship just sort of fizzles out or it goes away. Everybody, everybody needs a companion and needs a friend. And if you have been fortunate in your life to have an authentic, genuine, fair weather, stormy weather, mountaintop, valley, success, failure, good time, bad time, friend that cannot be shaken. You are of the most fortunate person on earth to have friend. Second Samuel chapter number 15. Second Samuel chapter number 15. Now this is going to bring us in to this moment where Absalom is uh, rallying the men of Israel around himself and he's going to declare himself king and he's, he's going to uh, take over his father's kingdom. And it seems that David is somewhat um, taken by surprise by this act, though he shouldn't have been. Because there, there were a lot of telltale signs that were taking place up to this point. Um, and there were some big mistakes that David made with Absalom, by the way. Um, Absalom, and I, just, just to, to build a little bit of background, um, uh, King David went through radically different seasons in his life. He starts off as the youngest brother. And, um, you know, he's a shepherd. He's a good boy. He loves the Lord. Um, the Bible speaks about David's character when he was a young man. Uh, in fact, when the men of Israel realized that King Saul had this evil spirit that was being troubled, they said, we need to look throughout a land and we need to find a man that we could bring to somehow minister to the king. And they found David. And by the way, they found him before he killed Goliath. His reputation amongst the, the, the well-known people in Israel was stunning. They said there is a man, he's a man of valor, he's a man of war, he's a man of character, he's a man of worship. And he was brought before the king. David will eventually kill Goliath. And when he kills Goliath, um, his name is going to be much set by in Israel. You're going to find that he is loved by the, the people closest to the king. He's loved by the men of Israel. He's loved by the people of Israel. It was a wonderful season. Aren't those good seasons? Man, those are good seasons. And David, in his faith and patience, is going to wait for God. David has already been anointed by God to be king. Saul has had a twofold rejection. His first disobedience to God, God said, Saul, your kingdom will not continue, meaning it's not going to Jonathan. And then when he didn't kill the Amalekites, he said, God has rent the kingdom from you. You won't even finish your life as king. David is anointed as king. Uh, but, but what is stunning to me about David's character is that he will never pursue that throne. He will never take actionable steps on his own to take that throne. Although he's been anointed by God and you know that Saul has been rejected, he's going to do something unbelievable. 
You see, when he's first brought to Saul, the Bible says that David loved Saul and ministered to him. Saul, of course, is going to eye him. At some point, it clicks with Saul. That's the neighbor better than me that God's going to replace me with. And then he begins to attempt to kill David. Of course, it doesn't work. God preserves him. But I think in David's life, there, there, are, there are a few very, very dark moments in David's life. There's a, there's a few moments. And, and the one that always stands out to me is when he and Jonathan are discussing whether or not it's safe for David to come back to the throne room, uh, to the palace around Saul. And Jonathan says, go wait out in the field. I'm going to search out my father, and I'm going to let you know if it's safe to come back. Now, remember, this is what David has seen. David was a shepherd boy who was pursuing nothing, and without any effort of his own, without any self-promotion, just by the handiwork of God, he is being brought, he is being elevated, he is being respected, he is given power, he is given position, and he's not attempting to get any of it. And I, I could see that David is probably saying, God is bringing this to pass. And by the way, you should know when God wants to bring something to pass, you don't have to make it happen. In fact, you'll mess things up a lot. We've all probably put our hand to the plow a little bit when we should have just sat back and waited for God. But you won't have to. A man's gift maketh room for him. God will prepare what he wants for you. So I, I could see David seeing this is all coming to pass and he's just having faith. And where I think David's first major crisis came is when Jonathan comes back and says, you have to leave. You, you ha see, leaving, I don't think, was ever on the books for David. That didn't enter David's mind to leave. And we can see when David leaves, it, it's, it's a whole series of probably missteps. Um, a little bit of panic a little bit of trying to figure out what to do. He goes down to the priest at Nob. He, he's not honest with them about why he's there. And of course, he's thinking, if I, if I lie to them about why I'm here, I'm protecting them, because if Saul ever founds out that I was here and they helped me, I know Saul, he'll kill all these people. And isn't, isn't that what Saul ended up doing? You can see why David lied, because he thought he would protect them. But you see, David's, David's shaken right now by all of this. He's not really thinking straight. And then of all the things to do, he runs over the king of Gath and, and goes for protection from the king of Gath, like where that guy Goliath was from. That didn't end up well. You all know the story. Um, David's only way out of that one is to act like a madman and let spit run down his beard. And, and then he ends up in a cave. He ends up in a really dark place in a cave, the Cave of Dulam. There's a couple psalms written while David's in that cave. And da David will describe the darkness in his soul while he's in that cave. It's very, very hard to feel in moments like that, to feel that you are, like, alone, forsaken. Dreams dashed, just down, low. Of course, the first group that God brings to him after that is like a motley crew down to the cave. So you understand David's had down moments. David's had mountaintops. David's been brought down in this case really through no fault of his own, and yet God was taking him there. But when we come to 2 Samuel 15... David is at another down and a low point, but some of this low point 
really is some of his own making. You see, when we're in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we have the story of David and Bathsheba. And we can see that this godly man who's walked with God, a man after God's own heart, has just caved into his, his worst flesh, sees a woman, lusts after a woman, asks and inquires who she is. And when he's told who she is, he takes her anyway. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. He creates all these scenarios. And finally, he engineers the, the murder of a, of a loyal man. You know, another man in the Bible called, David, called David's friend was Nathan, the prophet. Let me tell you something about your real friends. Sometimes your real friends are going to walk up to you and it's going to hurt them to say it because they love you and they're going to say, thou art the man. They're not going to go tell everybody else, he's the man. That's not what your true friends do. Because your true friends, even when, you've ha even when you're in a mess of your own making, your true friends aren't looking for your destruction. So true friends are going to do the hard thing sometime, and you're going to be able to take it from your true friends. It's hard to take it from people who aren't your true friends, but it's those true friends where their friendship is established and real, they are the ones that are going to come to you and say, thou art the man. And by the way, you will find out how true a friend is by the way they respond when you do the uncomfortable thing and go to them and say, thou art the man. Because sometimes when you say, thou art the man, you lose a friendship. And then you realize that wasn't actually the friendship that I thought it was. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So sometimes there's a little bit of that rubbing and a little bit of that pain that's there. The son dies. And that the son dying, not, not all children who die by any means are because of any sin that anybody's committed. But this one was. Nathan said, God has forgiven you, how be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. The child that is born unto thee shall die. David prayed, David fasted, David begged God, but God still took that child. It is hard to lose a child. I've never lost a child. I am good friends with people who have. And there is a particular grief that you can't ever really get out of the heart when you've lost a child. It's not natural to lose a child. But can you imagine adding to that, that because of your deed, the child has died? And to have to feel that, and to have to carry that. Like, how do you carry on with that? Like, how do you, how do you know that for a fact, not because anybody else judged you, but because God revealed that to you? How do you, how do you carry that load? So David's got, David's got one load that I have greatly sinned, I have caused dishonor to the name of the Lord, and yet God wants me to continue being king. And now he's carrying the grief of a son that he's lost. And you, you know the story at the next chapter 13. There, there's, there's this horrific immorality that takes place in his family. His son, Amnon, rapes his daughter, Tamar. How, how, do, you, how do you even deal with that? 
How do you reconcile that in your heart as a dad? Thinking about that as a mom. And you're a king. You're supposed to administer justice. And there is a very clear commandment in God's holy law and word. What should have been done with that sin? And yet David is now conflicted in his role as a king, in his role as a father. And he's, he's feeling it now. He's feeling some of that, that failing as a father. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he's telling himself, my son is like this because I have somehow failed as a dad. So now he's not administering correct justice to his son. Boy, that could come up for, for scrutiny from the people of the land. And then his... Older son Absalom is just eaten up by what's been done, and he's waiting for his dad to do the right thing. He's waiting for his dad to do the right thing, and he doesn't. He doesn't. Two years go by, and Absalom's like, I'm going to take care of this. Maybe Absalom thought, I'm heir to the throne. I'll be the next king. I have the right to administer justice. I don't know what things Absalom told himself, but eventually Absalom goes and kills his brother Amnon. He, he administers the justice illegitimately that his father should have done legitimately. And then now David's even more conflicted because I have my son who's heir to the throne who's now done this against my son who did that against my daughter. So he basically banishes his son. His son kind of banishes himself, and then David seconds it. And then after a while, Joab is saying, David, you need to bring your son back. So he brings him back. But when you read later in chapter number 13, David says, bring him back, but I don't want to see his face. It's, it's a funny conflict that's going on in David because David says, let him not see my face. But later on, when Absalom overthrows the kingdom, he gives instruction to his men, deal gently with the boy for my sake. And when Absalom is eventually killed in battle, David is just completely broken. Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, Absalom. David is not in a great place right now. And then maybe, maybe David is just, he's not paying attention to what's going on in the kingdom. The people in the kingdom that used to have access to David don't seem to have it anymore, and Absalom's filling that void. And when you read through chapter number 15, um, he, uh, here I'm not going to read it, I'll summarize it. Um, Absalom is dreaming about being made king in the land. And I suppose that that might not be the worst thing for the elder son of a, a king who's getting old to be thinking about, about maybe one day taking over the kingdom from his father, but his dad's not speaking to him. So Absalom's standing at the gate, and he's being an intercessor between the people of the land and the king. And, he, and he's, 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 he's basically solving their problems. And, and you've got, you got to be really careful about this. Those people that will come to you and say, hey, I know pastor's really busy. I know, it's, I know it's hard to get to him right now, but I've got all the time in the world for you. And thank God for multiple people who can counsel, multiple people who can visit. We need people who can teach and do all kinds of things. But you have to be careful about the motive of somebody who's actually just slowly looking for an inroad to get a place that they want to be. Be careful of that betrayal. So now this betrayal is taking place. And if you look down in chapter number 15, verse 6, it says, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse number 7 says this takes place after 40 years. So this means we're right now at the tail end of David's kingdom. 
Verse 10, but Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in they knew nothing, uh, not anything. Good men would be caught up in betraying David in their simplicity. Um, you know, it's not good to remain a simple man. You do need to pay attention to things that may be afoot around you. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the uh, Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased with Absalom. Now all this is happening, and David's not noticing. As if there was one more thing you could add to the trauma that David's been experiencing these last few years. There came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. You know, there's a lot of things in that. It's not just that Absalom is leading a conspiracy. It's not just that Absalom is going to take over the throne. It's that when he blows the trumpet and declares himself to be king, the hearts of Israel are gone after him. You know, you could say it another way, David, you've lost the hearts of the men of Israel. I mean, just, just think for a moment. Just, just put all these things on yourself for a moment. You know, it's so easy to armchair another man's grief when you're not part of it. Like when you don't have to really allow these things to play out in your life. And David said to his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee. This is the second time David will use that word flee. The first time is when Jonathan said, David, you need to leave. And it said he arose to flee for fear of Saul. And now here, 40-something years later, he's going to rise and flee from his son. For we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. I love the heart of David even here. He said, we need to leave now and spare Jerusalem. Because if, if, if Absalom comes now, the city's going to get destroyed. Just me and my household and my servants, let's leave now. So he leaves. There's a, there's a very particular scene coming up here. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel or Jerusalem. For those of you that have, you've probably had the opportunity to be up on the Mount of Olives and looking down over the Kidron Valley to see the, the Temple Mount, where the, where the temple was. He's, he's going to leave with his household and with his servants, and he's going to go up the Mount of Olivet. I want you to, if you know that picture in your mind, I, I want you to picture without all the modern cities and buildings and everything, just imagine a little road with a hillside with some olive trees. It says, The king's servant, verse 15, said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. I want you to notice the, I want you to notice the groups that went with him. The servants went with him. The servants those who served the household of the king, the servants. And the king went forth and all his household after him, that's his children, grandchildren, and his servants. The king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. 
The king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was afar off. And his servants passed on beside him in all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites. That's interesting. Those were his, you, you, you might call them his foreign mercenary armies. The Cherethites, the Pelethites, the Gittites from Gath, those are all Philistines. These are all people that have come to be with David. Very special men that David, not even people of Israel. Then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou um, with us? Let's skip down. I don't want to read his whole part. Verse 23, And the country, all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. And the king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over the way toward the wilderness. Zadok the priest, they carry the ark. Verse number 30. Look at this picture. And David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been so down, broken, whether through defeat at the hand of a Saul or whether a defeat at your own hands. Please tell me you're not the person in here that doesn't know deep failure and deep regret. Have you, have you ever gone that low? Can you, can you, what was going through David's mind as he walked out the eastern gate he went down over that brook Kidron and he walks up the Mount of Olives and he's leaving again. He's leaving Jerusalem again. The first time he left is when Jonathan said, you have to go. And now after 40 years, after all this kingdom, there is the king, the end of his life. And what's he doing? He's walking out and notice he's weeping. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, there is a pain there is a darkness. And that there's nothing else to say. It's just to weep. This is, this, is, this is not a little tear down his cheek. This is just a wounded, broken, discouraged, depressed, disappointed man weeping. Had his head covered. And he went barefoot. Can you picture the great King David? Head covered, barefoot, weeping, surrounded by Philistines and servants, walking away from the palace, walking away from the throne. And all the people were with him, covered every man his head. And they went up weeping as they went. And if it couldn't get any worse, and one told David, saying, Ahithophel is amongst the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel was a king's counselor. I think you know well enough that Ahithophel was also Bathsheba's granddad. You know? So, so the, the betrayal hurt Ahithophel. But Ahithophel never forgave David. His words were smoother than oil, but war was in his heart. 
And all the while, David thought I'd been forgiven. I'm going to tell you something about your real friends. Your real friends will know you inside and out, the good, the bad, the ugly. And when your true friend says, thou art the man, your true friend is going to wrap his arms around you and say, I forgive you, and you haven't lost my friendship. You haven't lost it. He betrayed Ahithophel. Ahithophel pretended to forgive him, but stayed his enemy for a long time. So now David, as he's barefoot, as, the, as his head is covered, as he's weeping, as he's walking up the hill, someone else has one more piece of information to add to this. David, Ahithophel is also with Absalom. How much worse can it get? Verse 32. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount, where he... <laughs> you know what? When you can't do anything, when you can't fix the problem, when you can't fix the, the damage, when you can't fix the family, when you can't fix the reputation, when you can't do anything at all, whatever the reason behind it, when you're broken, when you're barefoot, when your head is covered, when you're down, let me tell you the one thing that you can still do. You can fall on your face and you can worship your God. Just worship, but I can't fix it. <laughs> you know what? You, you didn't have any control of it when you thought you had control of it anyway. So you can't fix it? Welcome to the club of people who can't fix anything. But guess what the one thing you can do? You can get on your face and you can just worship. He wept and he wept and he wept and he wept. And then with everything that was there, he fell on his face. I don't know if he knew the verse yet, but maybe he just said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. He's up there on the top of the Mount of Olives. It says he went to the top of the mount where he worshipped God. Behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him. Now, I, just, I want you to picture David. Boy, that Mount of Olives is a special place of weeping. You might think of somebody a few thousand years later yes. weeping around that same garden. He's yes. weeping there, and Hushai the Archite comes. Now listen how he comes. He came to meet him with his coat rent, with earth upon his head. Now, of course, David is going to send Hushai on a task to go back to um, defeat the council of Ahithophel, but forget that part of it for a moment. Look at verse 37. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city. It's the only story we know about Hushai. He went on David's behalf and defeated the council of Ahithophel. 
But leaving out the work that he did, I want to thank you. The two descriptions to David, he was David's companion. He was David's friend. And I just think about this moment. I think about David up on the Mount of Olives, barefoot, head covered, broken, devastated, weeping on the ground, crying, worshiping. It's amazing how those two can go together, like being absolutely devastated and worship. And in fact, sometimes the, 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 the most beautiful worship you will ever do is there. God is nigh unto them that have a broken heart and of a contrite spirit. God says, I meet people there. That's a special place with me and people. So he's down there, and, and I'm sure that God's... While David's on his face there, Hushai, his friend, has rent his coat, and he's put earth on his head. And it may not have played out exactly like this, but this is how I see it. There's that man, David. A good man. A man that more verses in the Bible are written about David than any other man in the Bible. Future prophecies still hang on what God will do with David and with David's kingdom. The New Testament has marvelous things to say about David, that the only time David turned aside from anything God told him to do was in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So before you try to hyperanalyze and hypercriticize all the different things in David's life, you better look at David's life in light of what God said about David. But there he is. He's hurt. He's broken. He's wounded. And where's everybody else? Their hearts have gone to the next big thing, Absalom. Absalom's going to reign. All Israel's after Absalom. All the hearts are after Absalom. Where's David? Barefooted, head covered, broken, on the mount. No fanfare for his final hours. Thank you, David, for all you did for us all these years. The New Testament will say that David served his generation by the will of God. He served the people the mighty men weren't intimidated of David like they were of Saul. The mighty men became stronger in his kingdom. He blessed people. He wrote hymns and psalms that we sing to this very day. And yet at this his deepest, darkest moment, where is everybody? There he is up there. And here comes Hushai. Clothes ripped. Earth on his head. Can see David on his face, weeping, weeping, weeping. And all of a sudden, somebody kneels behind him and just puts his arm around him and says, I'm here, David. I'm here. Let's worship God together. I am with you, David. There are too few people like this on planet Earth. You know, down there at that place, how you divide all your doctrine doesn't seem to be really important at that point. Now, I'll just conclude with this. You may not think that you need a friend like that. But 
there will be a time. There will be a time. And I hope to Almighty God that when you get there, that you have a friend. You know, because the friends, the real friends, are the ones that help us recalibrate again. Because I, I think sitting down there at that place, I, I think David, I, maybe at that particular point, David came to one of those other points to say there's nothing to do. This is the end. But when Hushai got there, when Hushai got there, David's like, well, well maybe this isn't quite the end. I mean, he and Hushai got to praying together, talking together. And all of a sudden, God said, hey, there's, there's something else. This is not the end. But his ability to walk again, to stand up again, to believe again, to hope again. Okay, Hushai, why don't you go back there? And why don't you defeat the council? And Hushai said, I'll go back. I will get information. I will pass it on. And David's next leg of the race, because God wasn't done with him yet. He walked again. Because he had a friend. God help you, brothers and sisters, to not be so pious. Because until you've been broken a little bit, can't really relate or just a little bit pharisaical about how we look at everybody who's down. But boy, once you've been down and God's used a friend to bring you back up. Yeah. You know what you begin to pray for? God, make me a friend. Make me a friend. Thank you, Father, for this message and this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Scott.